Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Klebe, your host, and this week we continue on with our conversation with John Skeet. So please enjoy. Are you stuck at home climbing the walls when you should be hanging out with the community at the latest conference to get canceled? Are you wondering where to hear your JavaScript heroes like Amy Knight and Douglas Crockford and Chris Heilman? After the cancellations, I decided to put on a JavaScript conference for you online. I invited my favorite folks from around the web and got them to come speak at an online event just for you. Go to jsremoteconf.com and check out our speakers and schedule. The conference is on May 14th and 15th. Come join us at an online conference that we guarantee will keep you safe and keep you informed. jsremoteconf.com. So you're continuing to work on Node of Time. I think you're you're past version two now. So I think the latest version is 2.4.7. Gotcha. Um, and well, let's, let's start with what is Node of Time for people right. who are familiar Good. with Oh, it. yeah, for people like, who don't know. Yeah, why right. did you come up with it? What was the need for it? Ah, so we're back to Stack Overflow in a way. Um, <laughs> so Node of Time is a better date and time API for .NET. That's its sort of strap line. The background to this goes way back to 2009, I guess, maybe 2008, when Stack Overflow was very, very new, but suddenly gaining popularity, and there was Stack Overflow Dev Days, was a series of one-day conferences around the world where people would come and give talks, and they were usually Stack Overflow users coming to give the talks, and Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood would give talks as well. And I was invited to give a talk, and I talked on uh, Humanity Epic Fail, the mess we've all made of software. It, it was... Entirely serious and very tongue-in-cheek at the same time. Um, and I can tell you how tongue-in-cheek it was in that it was presented by me and Tony the Pony, who is a sock puppet that my wife made for me. And the idea was that Tony was a diligent and hardworking but not terribly talented coder, and we would you know, show him examples of code, and he would get confused by things or try doing things the obvious way that turned out not to work. And I was basically focusing on, you would think that computers would know how to handle text and numbers and dates and times. You know, those are the three most fundamental sets of data types that we've got. And they're all chronically broken due to, and I, I end up blaming three groups of people here. One is all of humanity. You know, humans have made things really complicated. There is no reason why date and time needs to be quite as complicated as it is. If we'd only ever come up with one calendar system, if any, then that would have been significantly better, for example. The second set of people I've blamed is the sort of systems architects. Uh, so whoever decided that floating point numbers, um, storing them as binary floating point with exponents and mantis and things, that's a, a great default data type to use uh, that people will end up using in business applications to store financial values and whatever that really aren't in any way suitable for that. And something like decimal is far more appropriate. And then text as well. It's really, really tricky to do properly. And again, if, if humanity had come together really early on and said, right, what do we need out of text? And what's just making life too complicated? I think we would have one character set instead of the many that we've got for sort of Russian and Chinese and Latin and things. 
we probably wouldn't have any accented characters or we'd have just a few and they would be nice and easily represented and things. Unicode tries its best to deal with that mess, but it's not fun. So back then, trying to cut a long story slightly shorter, uh, I sort of ended the talk by saying, okay, this is all a mess, but one of the ways to help with this is to use the right tool for the job. So if you're using... If you're doing things with date and time in Java, then use Joda time. This was long before mm-hmm. java.time came along. And if you're using .NET, there's nothing for you, really. You've got date time. Um, I think date time offset was, was available, and time zone info may or may not have been. But basically, you've got a very limited set of types to work with. And I felt really bad having to say, you're stuck, sorry. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll port Joda time. And... This was something that I started not knowing whether it would be successful or not in terms of whether it would work. Certainly didn't know whether it would be successful in terms of whether it would be taken up or not, but it was fun. And I started doing it as a fairly straight port, but avoiding, well, I fairly quickly realized that I wanted to avoid some of what I viewed as the design mistakes of the of the Joda Time API. So as an example, there are plenty of places Joda time will just say, oh, well, you can specify a time zone here. And if you don't, I'll just use the system default time zone. And because that's very rarely the right thing to do, I wanted to make that much more explicit. Likewise, there's almost nothing that just uses the current date and time or the current culture in Noda time implicitly. Uh, We have to sometimes write formatable, but any other time you can say, do this with the current culture or with the invariant culture but you're always explicit about it. So I sort of started getting my own design um, design language almost for Node of Time and the, the principles, that's what I'm reaching for, which are quite different from many APIs where you know, an explicit goal is, oh, don't make the developer think too much. No, in Node of Time, I really want you to think, and you've got to probably think before you start touching the keyboard. But my job is when you've done the thinking and I can help you think about what you need to think about. I can tell you some of the questions you should be asking yourself. Once you've worked out what you need to express, my job is to make that as easy to express as possible within your code so that your code shouldn't be a mystery. When you read some code using date time, it's sort of, well, I I hope this is a UTC date time rather than a local or an unspecified date time, but well, the type system's not going to help me. I, I better add some comments or make sure that the variable's called UTC date time and maybe validate it and things. So you either end up with code that's ambiguous or very long-winded. And the idea is in no time, the type system and the names of the methods and the properties and things should, should if I've done my job properly, um, help you write code that is clear, easy to follow, and you're never in any doubt about anything. That's the aim. Yeah, so I started that back in, well, certainly by 2010, and I'm still going at it now. And as I say, the latest GA release is 2.4.7, and most of the patch releases for Node of Time aren't due to bugs. There have been a few, but they're mostly not due to bugs. It's that we release another version of Node of Time every time IANA releases a new version of the time zone data. Because okay. this is one of the things about dates and times that people don't realize is that the time the time zone rules change quite a lot. Several times a year, there are updates to the time zone rules. 
there's probably one in the next couple of years when the EU stops observing daylight saving time, I think. It's, yeah, there's a number of states that are considering it as well in the US. Right, right. And in fact, the US went through something, I think it was an act in 2002 that then went into force in 2005, something like that, um, right. around you you moved your daylight saving time. The dates changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a pain. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> right. So... Yeah. I hope if you've been using Noda time, it would have been relatively easy to decide when to take that. So instead mm. of using whatever your operating system has, you can either use whatever the version of Noda time that you're using has built into it, or mm. if you don't want to change the version of the package, we publish NZD files, so Noda time zone data files, on the Noda time website. And there's there's a URL that you can ping just to say, hey, what's the latest file? What's the latest file? What's the latest file? So if you want to stick to a specific version because you know that all your data is centered on that and occasionally you'll migrate all your data, that's fine. If you want to keep up with the latest, the absolute latest, then you can ping the Nodatime website, load it dynamically um, in your application, and that's all good too. And I try to, when, when a new release comes out of the AI, the IANA data, usually there's a new release of Noda time within 12 hours. Sometimes it's within two hours. Occasionally it's been more than 12 hours if there have been oddities in the data, which happen occasionally with things I don't expect, like Japan decide or the Japanese rules correctly identifying um, a daylight saving time transition at 25 o'clock instead of one o'clock in the morning. It is more officially, in the 1950s, this was at 25 o'clock, which has some interesting ramifications. So I can yeah, imagine. That kind of delays things sometimes, but normally <laughs> we get things out pretty quickly. Whereas if you've got to wait for your Linux distro to be updated, it could be quite a long time. Do you reckon there's a lot of like fairly critical applications um, that will be using it? I believe so. I think a railroad company in the US is using it. I believe bits of Azure use it behind the scenes, I think. Last time I looked, let me let me have a look on Nougat, and I never know exactly what what the stats mean on Nougat. But the version two point four point seven has been downloaded just under half a million times in four months or so. So I think it is reasonably widely used, but it's it's very hard to tell just from the bug reports I get. Yeah, you know, obviously I watch the Node Time tag on Stack Overflow very carefully, try to answer anything there. That sort of takes priority over almost anything else is fixing no-design bugs or answering no-design questions. But it's quite hard to tell from Stack Overflow activity because if I've done a great job on the documentation mm. and on the API design, then hopefully, you know, why would anyone need to ask a question? Isn't it obvious from the docs? We're, we're not there, obviously, but that's the the aim. So yes, Nougat gives some, some idea, um, but it's quite hard to hard to tell. The other way I can tell is occasionally people will send me an email or write a tweet saying, oh, I've just migrated my code to, stack, uh, to Noda Time and it's so much cleaner now. Thanks, John, uh, which is really lovely to see. But it's been a fantastic project to work on. Learned so much. Are you the only uh, person working on it or do you have like... I'm people? the primary. So I've probably written 98% of the code. We had a few more contributors early on who contributed, I think, a lot of the time zone compiler code came from, I forget the name right right now, but it's all available on GitHub. 
and there are some other bits, but a lot of it has been rewritten over time. Um, now, I have a couple of contributors. So a friend of mine, Malcolm, in London, who isn't a .NET programmer, but whose um, instincts around API design are impeccable. So I lean on him quite a lot for ideas around, oh, I'm not quite sure how to represent this or that. And a guy called Matt Johnson uh, in the US who works for Microsoft and is one of the moment.js maintainers, I believe. Um, and certainly he and his wife, Maggie, um, are keenly interested in date and time API things as well. They're helping shape the new JavaScript date and time API. So Matt's contributed quite a bit. Usually he's contributed more thought than code, if you see what I mean. So he follows Node Time closely, answers questions on Stack Overflow, weighs in on bugs, etc. And he's a great example of how obviously he's a perfectly fine developer and writes a lot of code, just relatively little of that code is in Node Time, but he's still a very valuable contributor to Node Time just for the the ideas that he communicates outside the code. Has there been discussions about bringing this into .NET proper, or do you prefer to keep it a third party? Matt came up with a suggestion in, I can't remember what it's called now, but there's some sort of experimental lab repo for, here are some APIs that we might put into .NET Core or might be blessed by Microsoft. You know, They get to be in the system namespace type thing that aren't as far away from the uh, BCL, the, the core.NET types, as Node Time is, but they're just sort of extra things like time of day kind of things. So he's proposed some of those, and I don't think that's currently going anywhere. Node Time itself probably wouldn't be part of.NET. If the Microsoft, if the.NET core authors wanted to do something exactly like Node Time, and they wanted to start off by saying, okay, we'll just copy everything and replace Node Time with system for all the namespaces. And then hopefully they'd rework a load of stuff that they have internationalization people who know all about internationalization. And I really don't. So I've done my best, but it's not going to be quite there. So if they could do a great job with that, I would be very, very happy. I knew there are some open source projects which sort of fear the embrace and extend of, of Microsoft or Google or, or anyone else, um, you know, taking their ideas and putting them into their own package. But while I would miss the opportunities for learning that Node Time has given me, I think it would it would be in better hands if it weren't my hands. And if if that also got wider adoption of better types, then that sounds like a thoroughly good thing to me. I don't think it's going to happen. What may happen, and there have been some discussions about this within the .NET Foundation, there's the idea of maturity model where you could sign up an open source project and make sure it have various things in place. So for example, all releases being done solely through reproducible systems, nothing built on a dev laptop, etc. And currently, to be honest, the Node Time releases are done from my personal laptop. But you know, if I wanted to go go into this process, I would have to sort that out, make sure a bunch of things, make sure there was a succession plan for if something, if I caught some terrible illness or got run over or whatever, what would happen? Make sure there's continuity. Make sure there was some sort of agreement of uh, maybe Microsoft looking over the code enough that they feel they could maintain it if there's some security issue and me saying, hey, 
you're okay to do a release if there is a security issue. Um, you know, if I'm on holiday somewhere, I don't want the world depending on something and I have to fix it within four hours in order to meet Microsoft's SLOs or whatever. So giving Microsoft the keys to that, that would be fine. And the idea being, if, you're, if you've got a library that's at that level of sort of trustedness, then you can start thinking about it as if it were just part of .NET Core that happens to be shipped on Nougat. So not everything that's system has to be shipped in the core framework itself. And there are examples of that already. So you've got system.link.async. If you're going to use the new iAsync enumerable in C Sharp 8 and .NET Core 3 and .NET Standard 2.1, you really want system.link.async. And I have no qualms about taking a dependency on that. It feels like it's effectively part of the system to me. I don't know what's going to happen on that front. The maturity model idea has had some pushback from the community. We need to refine what it means for for the .NET Foundation. But some of the ideas behind it, in terms of how can we make open source projects in the .NET community be trustworthy enough that Microsoft can depend on them, and you know maybe Cisco or Oracle or anyone else, any huge enterprises that might be nervous of depending on an open source project that is just a guy in a shed in the UK um, might feel better if, if they had all these guarantees that I'd signed up to. Gotcha. Are you freelancing or moonlighting? Or maybe you've thought about going out on your own. Every week, we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on The Freelancer Show to talk about becoming better at freelancing. We also bring in experts to talk about marketing, SEO, and delivering high quality to clients. So if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. With Noted Time, you've had some pain points when it comes to, to versioning. And, and you, have, uh, you have some ideas on how Microsoft or .NET could handle versioning better. Can you speak to that? So I, I mostly have pain points in terms of versioning um, and a few ideas, some ideas about how the situation itself can be improved more ideas about how we can at least detect pain points earlier. So NuGet packages are meant to follow semantic versioning. Great. So I'm making breaking changes from Node Time 2 to Node Time 3. But what does that mean in terms of anyone using it? Well, if you have two packages that each depend on Node Time, but one of them depends on Node Time 2 and one of them depends on Node Time 3, even currently if they're what I think of as private dependencies, if they're just pure implementation details in those other libraries, they're used for internal data structures only, never exposed via the public API. Well, it feels like that should be feasible, but currently it isn't. Uh, You'll get both of them would end up using Node Time 3, and if something from one package decided to, you know, started trying to use something that's only available in Node Time 2, it would just fall over. At execution time, you would not know this until it went bang. And that last point is the point that I think we could definitely do something about. I keep meaning, I had a, a long meeting with Rich Lander about this, about what, what is feasible. You know, it's, it's one thing doing in dream ideas, but what's actually feasible? And I really need to get back to writing that up as a blog post. But one of the ideas that does feel very feasible is you've got your built application. Here's all the DLLs that are involved in this application. Some of them may target versions of dependencies other than the ones that you've ended up with. So if you imagine my application that depends on library one and library two, 
and indirectly Noda Time. We've got four DLLs in the published version of the website or whatever it is. We've got you know, app.dll, library1.dll, library2.dll, notatime.dll. It wouldn't be too hard to scan all of those assemblies, find all the references from one assembly to another, and just check that they still exist. So if library1 depends on notatime.dll, check that all those dependencies from library1 to, say, systemclock.now or whatever it is, check that that still exists in the version nodatime.dll that you're actually going to be running against. There, there are more complex versions of this that you could get into. So suppose library one had something that would call into a bit of nodatime that doesn't exist in v3, but it so happens I'm not using that functionality in library one, then a really clever tool could say, no, no problem here, it's all fine a fairly basic tool would say, hey, there might be a problem. And that would be, I think, a good starting point. And it feels like something that should be writable within a week or something like that. There are other things in terms of just getting more idea of what counts as a breaking change. And a colleague of mine, Chris Bacon, has written a brilliant breaking change detector that I use every day within my work. And one of the things that I want as part of the .NET Foundation is to get these tools that exist in sort of little silos, that's in the googlecloud.net repo because that's where I do my day job of the Google Cloud client libraries for .NET. It would be better if we could get input from other people and make that its own separate project. We don't have time to do that in our day job because we're too busy writing the actual libraries. But in all projects, and Nodatime has this as well, it's got some really useful stuff that has nothing to do with date and time but I haven't got the time to do it properly. It scratches enough of my itch, right. but it doesn't really do it. It's not a full-fledged project yet, but I don't have the time to spin it off and fill in those extra 10% or whatever. Uh, so I, I would like, as part of the .NET Foundation, to try to make sure that we have all the tooling that we need as open source developers and where it doesn't exist or where it exists in four different partial projects that are spread across the web and none of them are really trying to fill the, the hole completely, can we get those folks together and say, let's work out a decent way of doing this? So with these problems um, that are versioning in .NET, um, do they exist in, in other languages? Like, I'm wondering if it's like NPM would also have that. And... So um, I gather that Node is generally good on this front, but I don't know, exa- I don't know enough about Node to know how it's good. You've got problems, uh, something called type exchange where if an API exposes a type, so say you're depending on node time in your library and your library exposes an instant, which is a node time type, then in .NET, instant from node time v2 and instant from node time v3, even if you can load the two assemblies side by side, they mm. are different types. So you couldn't pass something from one library to another. Now, in a dynamically typed language, you have less of that problem because you can pass the object around. You'll only find out a problem when you try to use something from the V3 that doesn't exist in V3 because you thought you were building against or running code against V2 or vice versa. But I I honestly don't know enough about Node.js to know exactly what form the problems occur in. I suspect that compiled languages um, have, or statically typed languages, have this problem in a more in-your-face way, 
And there may well be many situations where there isn't a problem in the dynamically typed language, not because it's dynamically typed, but le- but because the problems will only come up in relative corner cases. And if your application doesn't use those corner cases, you're fine. So yeah, whether you think that's a benefit of dynamically typed languages or not, I don't know, because I like to find out problems. I like to know there aren't problems before mm. I run the code. And that's what hopefully a bit of tooling to check that all the linkage still works would, would give us. I know that this problem does exist in Java, um, to some extent worse, I think, uh, where lots of packages have this idea of embedding a version of their own, you know, a copy of the library with extra hacks, automated hacks to add things to the package names and, and stuff like that. I think there are options for doing something similar in .NET. So imagine that um, library one shipped with library dll and maybe Nodatime itself would ship assemblies that had a name that included the version. So the Nodatime NuGet package version two would come with nodatime.v2.dll and Nodatime version three would come with nodatime.v3.dll. And if that became a known thing, then mm. the two things could live side by side. And you still wouldn't be able to, if you had type exchange going on, you wouldn't be able to pass an instant from one library to another. Yeah. But both libraries could use the version that they knew about, or at yeah. least the major version that they knew about at the same time. And it's a clearer which version you're using as well in your code, right? So. Right. Yeah, basically, there'd be fewer surprises, and I don't like surprises in coding. I like all <laughs> kinds of surprises outside coding, but, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, very true. Well, hopefully there can be some um, you know, movement and work on that to really make that the environment in NuGet a lot better, because I like some of those ideas. I think they're really... For, for me personally, it's a matter of finding time to write more and think more. Um, I've become quite passionate about versioning, not just in terms of .NET, but... In API design, we're mm. talking about versioning um, a lot at work. You know, how do you version APIs? How do you version client libraries against APIs? You want to be able to, as an API consumer, you want to be able to rely on stability. As an API producer, you want to be able to make breaking changes every so often, but major versions are a pain. And if you bump a major version in a client library, then everything that depends on you should bump its major version, and it all sort of leaks exponentially. There are genuinely hard problems here, and they're somewhat technical. They're technical in terms of the semantics that are involved, but they're highly human in terms of the impact. And you're you're weighing up benefits for one person against drawbacks for another and different communities and all kinds of things. And this comes back to massively earlier in this uh, in this discussion when I'm saying about the communication skills on Stack Overflow, this is exactly the kind of thing where it really helps if you're used to listening to people and trying to empathize with whatever they're facing instead of coming at it with your own perspective. And then hopefully communicating in a complex topic, which versioning is surprisingly complex, trying to communicate a consistent message um, in an easily understandable way. Now, something else I think you're passionate about is uh, diversity in tech, mm-hmm. and specifically, you know, genders and women and things like that. So I think uh, probably a lot of people can can see a need to improve that within the tech sector. So what are your thoughts there? 
my thoughts are initially, yes, we have a problem. Um, <laughs> and it's definitely not just gender. I've been increasingly aware of um, racism and um, not, I'm not saying there isn't racism within the .NET community, but I, I haven't explicitly seen that, but I can definitely see a lack of um, racial diversity within the .NET community. I think partly that's within the UK, there isn't as much racial diversity as there is in the US, for example, but there's also an age thing. So there was a tweet this week, last week, around the .NET community tends to be white middle-class 40-somethings, 40-something men. Now, that's clearly not always the case, but it is massively disproportionately representative in the the 40 to 50-year-old white men are overly represented. And this is a problem in various ways. I I was at a school where I was talking about this a bit, and um, a kid asked me a very wise question saying, right, why are you bothered about this? Is it because there are business, is it a business case because there are loads of studies that show more diverse teams um, get better results? Or is this a morality and, you know, just do the right thing? Okay, so, you know, which of those is is what drives you on diversity? And the answer is, it's great because it's both. Um, you know, if we do the right thing, we will also be better off. Isn't that a wonderful situation to be in? But learning to drum, and this sounds like a massive gear change, but it's really not. Um, <laughs> Learning to drum has given me a good way of talking about diversity and why it's so important. Because since last July, when I started learning drumming, even though I am still a terrible, terrible drummer, I hear music differently now. When I'm listening to, I'm a big fan of musicals, Hades Town, Dear Evan Hansen, Hamilton, etc. Um, when I'm listening to musicals, when I'm listening to soundtracks from films and TV shows that I'm watching, title credits, you know, credit music, I hear the drum track, the percussion, in a way that I just didn't this time last year. That's seeing the world differently in a very, very specific way, but I'm hearing the same music and getting something different out of it. And I feel that that gives me more of a perspective. And it's exactly the same way, or not exactly, but different people with radically different experiences and Different gender, different race, different age are three ways out of many, but they are three prominent ways that we tend to get different experiences. And I would say uh, different levels of wealth and disability are two other hugely important ones. You just experience the world differently. So you will see different problems that need solving and see different ways of solving those problems. You know, two, two people going down the same street and to, to an objective observer, they might seem the same experiences, but they're really not. And it's not because one person is you know, making something up. It's that the same experience, um, or rather the same set of facts represent a different threat level or a different opportunity or whatever it is to people with different experiences, different life experiences before that. So that's why diversity matters in terms of improving our teams, the more different ways we can see of solving a problem and the more different ways we can see those problems manifesting, the better the solutions are going to be. So for the tech industry in particular, like we, we like to say we're going to change the world. How are we going to get an idea of how the world should be changed unless, unless we're listening to everyone's voices? 
not just listening and then saying, right, okay, you've given me your feedback. Thanks. I, as white man, super person, will go and fix the world. But saying, no, please come be part of this. Yeah, um, Let's do this together. It sounds, I can hear myself sounding massively idealistic, but it's also just practical. So I think we can make the world a better place through more diverse teams. Um, I also think that there are simple things that are just wrong in the tech industry. People should not be being sexually harassed, and they are. Really just happens. Um, I would like to sort of finish, um, because if you don't stop me, I I can rant about this for a very, very, very long time, uh, with two book recommendations. One is Everyday Sexism by Laura Bates, and the other is... It's something about Silicon Valley, and I can't remember it. Um, I will, I will find the the book recommendation, and we can put it in the show notes. Um, yeah. But it's a it's a great book that's a real eye opener for what can happen not in every department of every team of every company, etc. But it's a a good eye opener for this is a real problem. This isn't a couple of people shouting really loudly about something that happened once. This is a serious problem that we all need to just say, this is not acceptable. We will not accept that our industry is this bad. We will do something about it. I totally agree. You know, and in a topic like this, it's such important, you know, that I want to give it its due. And, you know, I really, I really look forward to seeing a lot more female and other races in application pools when we're searching for new jobs, uh, new hires. Yeah, uh, there's a great uh, slide deck that I can also send you for the show notes about how to advertise well so that, uh, advertise jobs well, so that you do include people rather than excluding people. If you're hiring ninjas and rock stars and your perks are, hey, you get to play table foosball and you know, we're a really work hard, play hard culture, like, well, yeah, that might be exclu- excluding people who would love to be able to do that, but they've got kids to look after and maybe they're single parents so they don't have a partner or maybe the partner is working full-time as well so they've got a clock out after doing an entirely reasonable day's work they're right. not going to stay until 10 o'clock drinking with you all and so that's going to be off-putting if that's the culture that you're putting out there so yeah i'll i'll link to a uh, slide deck that explains that much better than i can that'd be great any more questions why or caleb no, I think we've we've okay. covered um, okay. a number of good topics <laughs> that agree. I think John yeah. is going to be able to tackle in the next year or two and make the world better <laughs> for all of us. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I kind of need some help on this, folks. <laughs> While I would love to be the Superman that people occasionally seem to think I am, certainly diversity and certainly versioning. Yeah, none of are, these are, are big items. Small to number of people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How do you manage your time? You seem to have so many things going on. So uh, Haphazardly, I would say. <laughs> I probably don't manage it as well as I should, really. Um, I, I know people who are far stricter about how they do things. And this is why I have blog posts that I need to write about versioning and blog posts that I need to write about drumming. And I really should be spending more time on the .NET Foundation stuff as a member of the board of directors and all kinds of things I... I could easily spend three times as much time as I have. And I've got a couple of books I'd like to write, you know, there's there's always stuff to do. But yeah, I would say probably the work of a relatively few number of people can make the versioning 
situation significantly better for .NET, and I really hope that happens. Diversity is not something that anyone can sit on the sidelines and say, yeah, I'm looking forward to that being cleared up. That's on every one mm-hmm. of us. Agreed. And you have a C-sharp book, right? Are you working I do. On- uh, C-sharp In-Depth by Manning. Currently in its fourth edition, one of the books I need to start writing at some point fairly soon probably is the fifth edition to cover C-sharp 8. All right. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. So if there's no other questions, I guess we can move on to picks. But what's your pick this week? Why? Okay. Um, so this week, um, I just came over, I just discovered this. Um, it, might have, um, it might be something you guys already know. Um, but um, inside Windows 10, there's a feature called... Um, I think Windows Sandbox. Um, so previously, whenever I've you know wanted to install a program or something, um, I always like whip up a, a VM or something because I, 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 if I especially if it's off the internet, I don't actually trust it. But um, there's just a really like a really quick way to doing that. If you just type in you know, Sandbox, um, you can you can instantly open a a, a VM um, and you can install that application from there. So. Yeah, I just didn't realize um, how quick and easy it is to to do that instead of having to actually go into you know hypervisor and install an actual VM. All right, what's your pick, Caleb? Yeah, uh, this week I've been spending a lot of time lately uh, listening to audiobooks and reading books about uh, mindset and how to approach things and willpower and you know how how you perceive the world. Um, and I found uh, what I think is a a good list of uh, books uh, around uh, mindset. And there's a lot in here. So, uh, right, I haven't read more than a couple of these, but it's, you know, if you're, if you're looking to become a better you, uh, there's, there's uh, some, some good books in there. All right. Awesome. So uh, John, you, I think you're a little bit familiar with what we have for picks and it doesn't have tech. So what would you like to have your pick for? Uh, so I would like to, if I can give a couple of books, um, I would suggest the books that I mentioned before. So Laura Bates, Everyday Sexism, and by Emily Chang, uh, Brotopia, um, which is a fantastic, if somewhat worrying, book. Great. Did I hear something about uh, maybe tiramisu? Oh, yeah. So um, on my non-coding blog, which is mostly feminism, I have my most recent post, which was back from July 2019, I don't post on it terribly often, is a recipe for tiramisu that I make quite often, and also for tiramisu ice cream, which I make less often, but it, which <laughs> is fantastic. Uh, so yeah, we can uh, we can include a link to that as well. Great. I'm going to have to right. try out that tiramisu <laughs> ice cream. If wow. you've got an ice cream maker, um, it's quite a lot of work in terms of just making ice cream tends to be a fair amount of work, yeah. whereas okay. the, the regular tiramisu is surprisingly, it's messy and it takes a lot of bowls and things, um, but it's not difficult or particularly time-consuming. Right. So my picks this week, since we did so much talk about drumming, it made me really think about you know one of my favorite bands, and that's the band Rush. 
and their drummer, Neil Peart. You know, he's my favorite drummer of all time, and he recently passed, and that was really a sad thing. But uh, their their sales have jumped up like 2,000%, so at least more people are getting exposed to that band. So if you're not familiar with the band Rush, uh, definitely check it out. Check out their album, Moving Pictures, and 2112. Those were uh, really great albums. So, and then I also have one other drummer that I follow on YouTube and that's called, his name's Avery. And he, at six years old, was in concert with Brad Paisley. And he did a song, uh, he did Hoffer Teacher by Van Halen at six years old hmm. in concert with Brad Paisley. And he's been on a number of TV shows when he was that age. I think he's like, he's like 12 now. So he's been out there for, for about six years. So I'll put the link into... Uh, his site in the show notes. So definitely check that out if you uh, like to see drumming. Cool. Thank you. All right. So if people want to get a hold of you, John, what's the best, best way to reach out? Uh, pro- usually Twitter. You can email me. My email address is on my Stack Overflow profile, but I have a, another link on there, which is please read the, the blog post that's linked there before you start emailing me. In particular, I don't take terribly kindly to emails that are effectively Stack Overflow questions that the author usually knows aren't really good enough to be Stack Overflow questions. So they think they'll uh, just take a shortcut. No, that's not how it works. Right. Um, but yeah, inter- happy for you to get in touch for anything else, but Stack Overflow is the place for Stack Overflow questions. Okay. And then on Twitter, you're just John Skeet? Uh, I'm just John Skeet. Just all one word, no hyphens or underscores or anything. And John is J-O-N. J-O-N, yes. And I am .NET Superhero. So reach out, get in touch, follow me. It'd be great. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, John, for spending the time out of your day with us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. All right. And thank you. And we'll see everybody, uh, catch everybody on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. See y'all. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.